0: Good G'day everyone and welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm sitting here with Lionel Burney, my co-host for the show this week. Welcome Lionel to another episode.
1: Hi Mitch, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing well actually. I've just had a massive block of training. I'm on a little bit of a rest day. i got a few days leading into my first race of the year, Hood Va, and I'm um, very much looking forward to it. Maybe a cold beer tonight, kick back and...
1: Um, Let the legs recover. There's a tough little climb at the end of, I think, stage two into Fayence, which Paris-Nice has been up a couple of times that I know. um, Bit of a sting in the tail. So that training will stand you in good stead for that, I'm sure. I had to do my
0: bike selection. What we're doing these days is we get an email a few days before the race and you have to choose your bike and your wheel setup for the race ahead and you get you know a quick look at the stages mainly looking at the profiles and of course you can change it last minute but they just want an idea of what you're thinking for the whole race and i just went light bike evo um super six evo which is the our climbing bike with with the low profile wheels the entire race i just saw up down up down up down up down up down for three stages and i know i'm going to be in for a tough one
1: well, it'd be good to blow out the cobwebs from, from the winter, been a little while since you've been in race action. But Mitch, who have we got on life in the peloton this week?
0: Was well, very fitting actually, just after our conversation just then, we're talking with Nate Wilson. He is the team trainer here at EF Education First. And we were just traveling back from our training camp just a couple of weeks ago, which was over there in Provence, down near Marseille. And we had a 10 days training around the hills there, preparing for the season. And I was driving back in the car with him, just talking about a whole lot of things. And I thought, I've got the microphone in the, my backpack here. I'm just going to switch it on and see what happens. And it turned out to be a fantastic episode. I try to get technical with him and just sort of find out what he thinks about how he trains a team, how he goes about it. He's a young guy, 30 years old, was an ex-professional himself, well, amateur professional, trying to get into the ranks. And he's... Very, very current and down-to-earth, and I just thought it was a great conversation. So, guys, sit back and enjoy this one, and I hope you can take something out of this because I really try to give you guys a little insight to what it's like to training the pros over in the World Tour. Enjoy. All right, here we go we are on the road you can hear the roof rex whistling away we're making our way back from Marseille, the coast the mediterranean coast the provence region back to girona and i'm sitting in the car with team trainer nate wilson welcome to the podcast mate
2: yeah thank you thanks for having me
0: and he is driving if you're wondering so maybe he might have to cut out every now and again Nate's with his second year with the team and I thought, what a great opportunity to sit back with him today as we're cruising in the sun after we've just had our training, just to pick his brain. And that's pretty much what I've been doing the whole way back anyway. So I thought, why not put the mic on and let's record some of this stuff for you guys to hear what we talk about while we're traveling back. All the data, all the training knowledge and everything else in between. First of all, let's find a little bit more out about Nate. He was a cyclist, he's a young guy tell me a little bit about your cycling career and how you ended up being where you are today.
2: Yeah, so I came up through the USA Cycling Development System and had the opportunity to race in Europe as a U23. So that was quite nice and I learned a lot from it that I think think helps me a lot now in terms of at least having a bit of a sense of how it is for a rider on some level but yeah my last year U23 was my last year racing and uh, that was 2013 and now I'm quite used to it but for a while it was a bit of a strange uh, dichotomy in the sense that all these guys I raced with like um, Lawson Craddock and Nate Brown then like it pretty quickly changed to like I was more working with them in a way that uh, usually was an older, like someone older than them, so it took me a little bit of time to adjust to new roles but now I think I'm quite used to it.
0: How did it come to you being on this team, EF Education First? Because as you described there, you're working as well with the the USA national team and then these jobs don't come by easily and just explain also what your exact role is in this team.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's true. They don't come by super easily. I think largely because there's just not that many of them. Um, you maybe have a few of these jobs in each team and not that many world tour teams. And a lot of times people will stay in these roles for a while. So for me, it just kind of happened a bit organically of right time, right place. But after I stopped racing, I finished a degree in physiology at university. And then I finished university and... Uh, wasn't necessarily planning to start working as a coach or trainer but yeah I don't know to be honest I wasn't having like the best time figuring out what I was going to do and started training some friends for fun and then was training more and more people to make some money while I figured things out and then just realized I was quite liking it and wanted to then get back involved kind of with a similar similar group to what was most known to me which was like under 23 European racing. Started working for USA Cycling in some role in 2015, but the first year I worked for them, I just worked completely for free. I pitched them on like an idea that I would work as an intern for the U23 program and just try and help with what I could from a training perspective and be a go-between person between all the riders, personal trainers, and then also the sports director of the program. Um, So I did that for two years and it was a really nice opportunity for me to also learn a bit of like trial and error of what was working from different coaches philosophies and what wasn't and I think that was like a very formative experience for myself and then I worked for two years as a sports director for the U23 national team but also always as a trainer and then I worked for one year in 2019 as the high performance director for the road and track programs uh, at the US Federation. And that was quite a like a jack of all trades position where you're sort of at the top of a lot of projects, but you're really just juggling different balls. But I think for me that ended up being really good in the sense that you just get exposed to a lot of different problems that a cyclist has to answer. Uh, to perform at the highest level so it just like raised my awareness of what's going on in the whole situation and then in 2019 my wife said if there was the opportunity to work in Europe and that meant we would be living in Europe she would maybe be interested in that and so from like kind of like a life experience perspective and then I just started Seeing, I don't know, you just tell people or email people like, hi, I'm looking for a job in the world tour as like a trainer or in the performance department. And here's what I've done. And I'd really love that opportunity if you're interested. And um, yeah, I got pretty lucky that uh, JV reached out to me pretty quickly because they were looking to fill the role that I have now uh, for someone to live in Girona train some riders on the team, but really be present in Girona to help the riders that are living there and to coordinate the training camps through the year. So that's kind of the path.
0: How old are you now? I turned
2: 30 in a couple months, yeah, so 30-ish.
0: So you're quite young too, and, and that sounds like quite a big career, and it sounds like, feeling I get too, to be in someone in your position, you have to do all the groundwork that you have done you have to be a jack of all trades at some point you have to go back to your roots an area that you're comfortable with under 23s you're saying and learn that from a different role not as a rider, but now as a coach before suddenly you can step up into an area that you've never experienced as a rider, you get gathering all this experience and you can try and put that together before you come in the world tour is that sort of how you're feeling with it now in your second year are you pulling on that experience or you still continually learning how do you sort of see yourself now after one year in the job as we start to tackle this second year
2: yeah i think it's both i mean i think i feel a lot more comfortable in terms of what i know and I feel confident that what I know is is good and sufficient I think that when you go to a new level you know you're going there because that that's maybe where you deserve to be or someone feels that you're going to add value there but you also at least for me feel a little bit like hmm, I wonder if my knowledge will be sufficient and if I will be able to help the riders or if I'm going to kind of need to figure a lot out in a short time and so I feel now in a little bit of a balance, like. I feel like last year I was able to add value to the system, but I also feel like I took a lot out of last year that I can put forward into this year, but also we're nowhere near, I mean, I don't know if anyone ever is, but we're nowhere near a perfect system. So there's no part of me that feels like, well, we've got our formula and now we just plug and play. So I think there's a lot of like using the experience, but
0: still trying to add to it. Talk to me about the different dynamics of... First of all, training people for money, then training young athletes who potentially aren't earning money but also have that massive aspiration to become pro or get to the top level, to then finally training guys at the top level and dealing with different levels of motivation, uh, different levels of physical level. Run me through those, I guess I'm simul- summarizing into three phases there and the differences and, and the motivations in each of those phases for you as a coach.
2: I mean, I think there's differences and commonalities. And and some of the commonalities, are think, I think, come down to the fact that there's just differences among individuals no matter what context you're in that's just that person's personality and so those differences exist on every level and for me that's something like the people that just maybe love to train and they just want to feel like they're continuously improving and it's exciting for them to get out there and they almost take as much or more joy in the process of what they're doing on a day-to-day basis compared to what they think it'll yield in competition um there's people like that i think on the amateur aspirational and professional level um but then there's also people on all three of those levels that like the competition aspect is the reason they do it you know and like if they don't feel like they're making progress or they don't feel like they're meeting what means a lot to them the motivations can drop away so I think you, you face some of these challenges on any level, and that's why what you learn on a lower level does help you on a higher level, because at the end of the day, like, people are people, and even if some of the context changes, like, you've got, I don't know, different versions of a, of a human psychology that exist in different contexts, but I do think, yeah, you know, a lot of these amateurs, like, they do it because it's fun, right, which comes with its pluses and minuses like in some ways they're really motivated for it but at the end of the day they they feel no pressure with it no one really cares if they succeed other than them and I think so you you see them being the ones that there might be a day or a period where you know if they really want to get better they kind of need to lean into it and grind through some hard work and that's not always going to happen.
0: Do you find that kind of athlete hard to train because myself being a competitive person and the way that I train and I think a lot of professionals are like this too, it's like push harder, do more, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And if you've got someone who sort of potentially won't fulfill your program as an as a coach, I might take that personally or be a bit like, Jesus, mate, well, you know, what's the point?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that's something that's changed for me over time because, you know, when I first started training people like that, I was one or two years away or past being an athlete who like was doing absolutely everything possible or that I thought possible to be as fast as I could like I was super motivated super detail oriented and I knew I was doing it because I wanted to be a high level cyclist but I also was just doing it because yeah I'm a competitive person I enjoyed it Um, so I think when I first started training people that are maybe more like it's their hobby and if if they wake up on a day and don't really feel like doing it, they're not gonna do it. I think it was hard for me to wrap my head around of like, well, why are you even working with a trainer if you're not? But, you know, as I've like gone down the road and now like I'm a hobby athlete myself, like I like to exercise, I like to be athletic, I even like to compete. But like, if I wake up on a Sunday and I decide, ah, I was thinking I was gonna do this, but I just wanna like walk to the cafe and get a croissant with my wife, and I just do it. So it's like now I guess I just it doesn't bother me because I understand where it is in that person's life balance. Where it gets frustrating is if someone's frustrated with their own progress and that's not in court it that's not equal with the amount of effort they're putting into it. As long as they feel like they're getting out of it, what they feel they're like putting into it, I don't have a problem with it. I think when you're working with higher level athletes, you feel a higher level of pressure as a trainer. But for me, in a, in a good way, like, you know, you're really working to something together and there's, there's an expectation that it's going to go well on a high level that really makes you think about what you're doing. If you know someone else doesn't care about it that much, it's easy for you to not care about it that much.
0: And yeah, it's a good reflection just as an athlete yourself thinking about your coach. It's like if you give that sort of feeling or that feedback or that emotion towards it, they're going to come with you on it well hopefully they are because they're feeling invested in it also I guess on the same note there you know you ride the highs and the lows too and and how do you go with that when you know you're investing so much and you believe in this program in this way and you know there's a million things that could happen in a bike race but for whatever instance it looks like that the, the training just wasn't quite correct how do you handle that with the athletes now at this top level when you said now the pressure's a bit higher there's a lot more on the line and the athletes invested in you a hundred percent. How are you managing that expectation now?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not easy. For me, the biggest thing is having a plan in place because, like, you don't really want to make mistakes. And you know, at the end of the day, at this level, athletes are on contracts and stuff, and you don't want to make a a mistake on your end that might hurt them on their end. Uh, but the thing for me is like, if I make a if I put a plan in place and I really have sat down and put a logic behind it in the sense of like okay the goal is to be good in April to be good in April I think we need to do XYZ below XY and Z there's these three points of what that actually looks like in in each month or whatever so let's now go and do it and as long as I've taken the time to write that down or whatever and like make it tangible I feel like if things don't go well it can be disappointing but we at least we've put a plan in place so we're way more likely to be able to figure out what we did that actually might not have helped and pick a different direction to go the next time and yeah that's still a bit of a trial and error situation that ideally you don't want to be in but for me if we're doing that like we're always making a step forward you know and as long as we're making a step forward
0: let's jump into a little bit more what your role is Uh, throughout the year but more so this time of year is actually running these training camps and coordinating training camps and actually on the ground organizing the day-to-day routes what everyone sort of needs to do what you need to achieve out of the training camp and I think it's quite fitting to talk about that now as we're driving home let's just run it through structuring a training camp and thinking about a training camp what goes into that for you in your mind run us through that especially this time of year for this, let's just talk about this camp, February camp.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, the concept for any training camp kind of starts as a collaboration with the sports directors. Um, like, what's the goal of the camp? And based on the goal of the camp, that dictates what riders are gonna be at the camp. Because I'm a big believer, personally, that like, training in a group of 30 riders isn't where you do your best training. So we're going to try and do our camps and in small groups and really have the purpose be that you go and do good training and get better from it and then how like detailed it gets below that in terms of what riders are there or what the training looks like then it goes into what the goal of the camp is I think this camp was relatively simple or straightforward because at the end of the day the top priority to come out of the camp is that it's this preseason camp so it doesn't have to be so fine-tuned of like well it's six guys and they're all doing the opening weekend and we're like on a really similar training structure so it's really dialed in. It's a camp we had in January this year but in the past maybe we would have had it in December um, because the 2020 season ran quite late. It's the biggest priority to me with this camp was getting guys together getting a good block of volume in with the support from the team you've got the car so you can handle the nutrition better you've got the group so you get a little bit of a group feel there's some training exercises we can do that maybe translate some of the fitness you've built up over the past six weeks at home doing intervals on your own into a little bit of of race rhythm i guess i kind of approached that a bit non-linearly but for me that's also a big aspect of the camp is just taking this base fitness that most guys have built up at this time and translating that over to like how that fitness looks under the pressure of someone else and within the dynamic of a group so rather than it actually being really structured with three times 12 minutes and everyone's got their watts and we're going up the climb and we regroup at the top I really like to do more exercises that actually look a little bit more free, but they're basically exercises you could never do at home alone. So for me, that's a big advantage of like, I prefer you guys don't come to a camp and just basically end up doing a week of training that you could have done at home alone on all your own paces. I think it's nice to do something that wouldn't exist riding at home alone. So I think those would be the priority goals of the camp, like get that preseason block of fitness, do some exercises that start translating the base fitness into a group dynamic. So we lay out the philosophy, and then it starts actually getting a bit more logistical, you know, making the routes, checking the hotel, working with the staff that's gonna be on on the ground, making the daily schedule more of like a crossover into like a sport director role, I guess.
0: You spoke about watts there, and that's obviously a very common theme these days. Power meters, watts, numbers, and a lot of the way the peloton is going at the moment is everything can be related back to can you push this amount of watts per kilo, can he do that watts per kilo, he did that watts per kilo up that hill, that's why he went forward, that's why that guy went back. That's also coming across a lot in training these days, and I myself can't help get caught caught up in it. And nine times out of ten looking down at the the garmin rather than actually feeling what my legs are, are doing tell me what numbers really do matter to you as a trainer um, what values you're really looking for and how you're going about dealing with this change and finding true races opposed to guys who are just what munchers as i like to call them um you know guys you can just push out the big power. You know, I think the World Tour, you've got to have a certain level, and that's what I'm trying to get at, what what numbers do matter. But there comes a point where you can also be a really good racer and beat a guy who can beat you on an ergo.
2: Yeah I think that's a really good one because I think you gain a lot from the numbers but yeah I mean for me there are numbers that really matter but I think they it does change with different people a little bit so I think in the World Tour like fatigue resistance is massive so when I say fatigue resistance like one of the ways I love to look at this is do a six-hour ride with a maximum four-minute effort in the first 90 minutes and then a maximum four-minute effort in the in the last hour and for me, that simple exercise, I learn a lot about, one, how good is someone's like raw power in that four minute band, which I also think is really important for making a difference in racing, even on long climbs, even in sprinting. I think this four to five minute power is really critical, but the fatigue resistance is really important. But this is where I think it starts getting individual and looking at it from this manner, we can start to solve where that individual's problem is. So if someone can repeat the power early and late, but the power is just not that good, then they almost might need to train the way a younger rider does a little bit and do some sessions more focused on raising that power and less focused on their fatigue resistance. If on the other hand, they do a great power the first time and then you have like a big drop off, maybe 10% the last time, then we really need to work on that fatigue resistance. So I think this repeatability Uh, once you have the power up to a certain level is really important and that's why sometimes in the world tour there's guys that can do a great peak power or a great power test that are not that good world tour racers because it's a about the context in which they can produce that power and then that's where i think it also gets more nuanced is it's not just fatigue resistance it's not just riding five hours at a comfortable aerobic pace and then doing the power it's riding five hours at actually a pretty high volume of intensity that gets accumulated through that day you know if you're racing in belgium it's the fact that You have to like do accelerations out of 200 corners before you get to the point where we see on the TV everyone gets shelled. And so it's not just being able to ride at that aerobic level. Maybe you can ride at the aerobic level for the set amount of kilojoules, but the accumulation of the short punches is what kills you. Um, So I think there's like some individuality in terms of what is, like what's someone's rate limiting factor and then trying to figure out what can be done to work towards eliminating that but yeah i think this accumulation of intensity combined with endurance is like the number one thing in in world tour racing
0: i think aside from numbers and this is something gets very much overlooked but we're all aware of it but it doesn't get as much attention as i don't think is the psychological level and i think you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but we focus so much on physically training ourselves and worrying about doing that extra minute or that, that extra effort or trying to get that extra 10 watts here, there and everywhere. But if your head is not in the game, throw all that training out the window and you can just sit up and call it a day. And I feel like it's I'm understanding it a hell of a lot more with myself over these years. Sometimes there is a sports psychologist employed in a team or sometimes some guys go out and find their own psychologists which I think is very smart but one thing that just sort of gets assumed in the role as a coach whether it's individual coach whether it's a team coach is this psychological role whether they know they're doing it or not or whether the athlete knows that the coach is working with him on a sort of mental level, that doesn't matter but I think that's part of the job and I'm almost sure that you're understanding that whether you did years ago or whether it's just becoming more apparent now that how important that part of your job is, is actually yes I need to set the right program, I need to have the right values, whatever, but you know half the job if not more is understanding what is going to make this guy tick, what is going to make this guy do these efforts happily. Tell me a little bit about that side of the job.
2: I think it's a big part of it and I think I keep saying things are individual which maybe sounds like a cop out but yeah I think it is really individual because I think of it maybe this is a negative way of thinking of it but I think that everyone's got their own mental traps to fall into and I think that once you can figure out once you know a person well enough to sort of see what their mental traps are and sometimes it's easier than others because I think this is where being a rider helped me a lot is like I had a lot of mental traps and like I didn't always realize them at the time but like I see them very clearly for what they were now.
0: What? Give us some examples of what your mental traps are, but what some typical mental traps that people out there might go, "Wow, that happens to me too." One of the big mental
2: traps I had that I see in a lot of people is like you've got this motivation to work hard in training because it's gonna make you better in the race. But I think you even we start telling ourselves, "I'm gonna work." You know you're working really hard in training and you say I'm working so hard that the racing's going to be easy. And and then you show up to the race and it, it's not easy. It's it's hard. And for me, I got I had some bad races when I think I could have had good races basically because I like I was surprised at how good everyone else was riding when I was riding so well in my own head. And and the truth was I was riding well, but like it was always going to be hard and one thing that clicked for me in my last year racing was like okay I don't need to constantly try and make the racing easier by proving it to myself in training like I don't need to go out and I've bled my insides open in training and I've done that because the racing's gonna it's gonna make the racing better and I actually realized my performances were better and better if I basically went out training almost not not motivated but just very comfortable to just do the work as it was not feel the need to prove anything to myself not feel the need to say I better do an extra 20 watts because that's going to pay off come the race basically just to to do the work and say if that felt easy man last year I wanted to do more but like this year I'm just going to say wow that's pretty good if that's feeling pretty easy and I'm quite excited for the race to like really just turn myself inside out and see what I've got and just to start approaching racing with the idea that like it's never going to be easy so the most important thing is that you show up in the headspace where you can go to your maximum depth and really do your best efforts in the race because I think I did a thing a lot and I see plenty of riders do this where they put so much effort into training that by the time they get to the racing they're almost a little bit mentally gassed and like they might be really fit but that like 3% extra in fitness they have, they end up losing another 5% in performance on the day because like when it just gets really hard, they don't have the fit, the freshness to make themselves really, really suffer.
0: Do you think that is potentially a cop out too that it is easier to train for some guys and to, I, sp- I think especially now compared to when I first started, no one was really checking my training, not online now. And you can almost be the, you can almost win in training I did everything that everyone told me to do. So if I get to the race and I actually creep, it's not my fault. So like you tick the box, you you almost put a safety net up for yourself. You almost set yourself up to fail because you go, I'm doing everything right and more. So when I go to the race, it's not my fault if I'm not in the front group. Can you sort of see that happening?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's so much of like, being afraid of underworking, that, yeah, overworking takes the pressure off, and you would never say, I'm going to overwork because it'll take the pressure off, or you would never even say, I'm going to overwork, but you do some, yeah, so many people are looking at your training that no one can then sit there and say, well, he slacked off, you know, like, um, he didn't he didn't have his shit together to come to the race ready, you know, it's it's almost, yeah, it doesn't, I don't know if putting the blame on someone else is, is the fairest way of looking at it but i think it does like yeah i think everyone is working so hard at this level that it takes sometimes more confidence to do a hair less and trust that maybe that's going to work out than to just get to that point where you can say well i definitely know i didn't underwork."
0: i totally agree it's it's sort of just like you know what being uh not being afraid to fail it's like okay that's enough and i've just got to put it all out there now and not like i said create this safety net for myself that you know if i do fail well, it's okay I, you know i'm going to be okay and just you know risk it you know it's it sounds funny but we all got our little tricks that we play and um, i'm also speaking from experience here i've done it myself made sure all the you know the boxes are ticked it's not saying that i would pull out of a race but maybe i didn't perform as well as i could have because i didn't put that pressure back on myself and go okay it's time to show what, you do, what you've what you done. Um, you know, I felt like maybe I just sort of had already achieved that goal in training and then the racing was just the next thing. All right, let's get to the nitty gritty. How many riders do you actually look after yourself and how do you balance that with being employed by the team and having that personal relationship with the guys that you personally train?
2: Yeah, so this year, it's new this year I trained seven riders on the team um, but last year I was only training three riders on the team so it's a bit it's a new change and but I think it's also those four new riders well it's actually five new riders that I'm training it's come about very organically because it basically came about that I got to know them a bit better last year and they asked me to train them. So for me, that's something that I'm really excited about and it makes it that we're starting from a good point because for the most part, they've elected to have me train them, which I think is not, we chatted about this a bit on the drive up to camp. That's not always something you get as a rider or a trainer in a World Tour team that I think can be a challenge on both sides.
0: Tell me about everyone out there listening might be thinking, you know what, I've got a trainer. I've just grabbed him off the internet or you know, I'm looking to get a trainer or I'm searching for that. What are some tips you can give them out there a way to find a good trainer? Is it purely looking for the you know, the program he's going to prescribe, is it he lives close by, he's pretty cheap, or is it that give him a call and have a good connection? What do you think are the most important factors?
2: I think different people might want different things out of a trainer. But for me, the communication is really important. I think that there's a lot of people out there now that have really good training knowledge. And there's a lot of great information on training science. And I think as a whole group of trainers, I think globally we're, we're always evolving and hopefully getting a bit better every year. So I think that for me, trying to find who you think is the absolute smartest guy is probably less of an importance than, or girl, um, less of an importance than trying to find the person that you really feel you connect with and that you feel comfortable saying, you know, I wasn't up for it today or this was harder than I thought it would be or I felt really great um, or why am I doing this because I don't really understand it. Um, I think finding, for me, finding someone that you can really have that good communication with is really important because I think that for all the data and metrics that exist, I think that the most valuable data for a trainer is the feedback from an athlete that is well in tune with what they're doing and comfortable sharing that. Um, So I think finding that person that you really feel you can say that to, whether it's about power or whether it's about like, I had a shit night of sleep because my wife and I had a fight or like, I had three beers and now I'm like should should I do this ride like I could but I feel like really crap should we just push the block back a day and like start it from a good place and just someone that you feel like you can say that stuff to and you're going to get a worthwhile consideration and response from for me that's the biggest thing in a trainer
0: well talk to me about I think this is one of the nicest parts about I would think is being a trainer and one of the best best bits that I love about working with my coach is when we get the time together to go motor pacing and I could be wrong here you can debunk this too I get the feeling and I love this too it's I get to the end of my block it's not necessarily about sitting behind a bike going super fast sometimes it's not even being behind the bike it's just having someone else there out there with you and not just someone else the guy who's riding my program, the guy who I've installed all that trust with, the guy watching over, checking on my efforts, and I'm out there performing in front of him. Whether it's riding behind, and he's watching, and he's calculating, and he's taking everything out of my head that day, and I can ride freely in a training ride. It's 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 the best feeling ever, because when you go out training on your own, you're making sure you do those watts, you're making sure you're doing the hours, but when you follow the motorbike with your trainer, It's on his shoulders and it's just a a really great day. It's a great connection that day. Tell me about what that's like for a trainer heading out on the bike for a long one with one of your boys or girls. (laughs) Yeah, for
2: me, I I really enjoy it. it. I think that you, from the rider perspective, I think that you summed it up perfectly and it actually really mirrors the trainer perspective of like you've set out this plan together, the rider's gone away and done all this hard work and it's almost like, um, it's not a test, it's just such a send-off together almost. Like, let's go out there, now you're fit, like, we're here together, we're going fast. And yeah, I had quite a few opportunities to do that last year, which is one of the awesome parts about living in Gerona, working for the team with these riders in Girona, of like, okay, you've done this big block, let's get out on the scooter, get the final tune-up in, um, and like, just, wow, like, you're ready to go, and like, yeah it's it's really nice you know and uh yeah it's really nice
0: well mate thank you very much for checking in today um we're almost heading down into gerona now just crossed the uh, french border no trouble there today so um looks like we're going to try and get out on the bike this week for a little touch up so uh until then mate thanks a lot
2: yeah thanks for having me
0: Well, there we have it. It was another great episode and I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you could hear the roof racks whistling away there. I was so surprised with how good the audio was in the car. It was just fantastic. You could hear him really well. What did you think about that one, Lionel?
1: Well, I was really interested to hear this because, uh, well, I'm at the very amateur end of amateur cycling. You know, my best days are behind me, but I still like to set myself targets. I still like to ride both indoors and outdoors. As I said last time, I've really got into the indoor training over winter. And listening to Nate kind of really humanized the training process for me. I mean, I've never had a coach. I've never been serious enough. So I've always kind of picked up little bits and pieces that that seem to make sense to me. And what I took from listening to him was that... One of the big problems that a lot of amateur cyclists i think have is that they think that there's some kind of big one-size-fits-all answer out there and that if they can just copy and adapt some of the things that you guys in the pro ranks do and and sort of lower the bar a bit but copy that sort of formula that that it's going to you know unlock the door to you know huge performance gains and i think that what i got from listening to nate was that no matter what level you're at and no matter what your goals are, the principles are the same. You have to have a plan. You have to just do your best that you can on every given day of training. Most of all, you have to be honest with yourself and honest with anyone else who's coaching you. And then also cut yourself a bit of slack when things don't perhaps go the way that you hope for them to go. And so I was actually riding on the turbo whilst listening to him talk thinking, all I need to think about is what I'm doing today and put as much into it as I can today and not think about the plan that I've made for, you know, tomorrow or the, the weekend until I get to those days. So it really kind of brought me back into the present and made me think about what is it I'm actually trying to do. I'm just trying to get a bit better every, you know, every week, every month. And uh, I know you guys are working at a totally different level. You're in competition. So what you're... Um, what the other riders are doing directly affects what you know what you've got to do but you've still got to remain uh, true to yourself i guess and and be honest with yourself about what training you're doing and, and most of all how you feel
0: i think that's exactly right and he really put it across that consistency you know it's not about you know and he really pointed it out he said he got caught out in the same trap is that if you try and just do that extra little bit more out training you know do 10 more watts than last week and you end up trying to you end up killing yourself in training and then when you get to the race you don't have that little five percent extra to give in the race i thought that was a great little tip that he gave It just uncovered the truth of what everyone is trying to do these days i feel they're trying to race themselves in training a little bit too much and i'm very much guilty of that too and it was a great conversation to have with him and also to touch on the psychological side of things, which we delved into a little bit on that training camp. And it was great to talk to him about some of the experiences that he has or has experienced himself that I go through with my own coach, which I'm sure that everyone goes through on all kinds of levels, whether you're a world tour pro, or whether you're just getting out in a weekend warrior, you have those internal battles. And it's great to have, you know, your guardian angel on your shoulder, your coach, to sort of, you know, chat about it or let him know how you're feeling or just to go through those ups and downs of those emotions it's a it's an emotional game riding a bike and um i'm definitely a culprit of that too
1: well I was thinking back to my racing days and I had no sniggering out there at the, the thought of me racing but you know I was sort of third cat level um and and I just remember that feeling of I've, I feel really good in training riding with the guys that I would ride with normally and when we go out and do do these rides and, and people would say oh you're going really well you're you know I mean I don't I don't want to use the, the term uh, too liberally but you know hearing somebody else say oh, you're flying at the moment you're going well and then looking forward to a race and absolutely having your backside handed to you because you've fallen for that trap uh, that i'm going so well this race is going to be easy and the, that's the one thing that as soon as you start thinking oh i've trained hard so the racing will be easy i think you know when nate said that even at the level that i was operating at you know just a, um, a kind of hobby cycling um, level you still you still want to get stuck into the racing and you still have that kind of confidence. But if you go into that realm of overconfidence, thinking, oh, I've done so much, I'm feeling so good, I'm I'm going well in relation to the people that I normally ride with this race, I'm just going to cruise around. And then suddenly it's not like that. You can really beat yourself up and, and you forget, actually, no, I was going well, but my mentality on race day was just wrong. And, uh, you know, I didn't know that then, so 10, 12, 15 years ago, um, it's a bit late now, unless I'm planning some kind of comeback in the seniors, maybe.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of racing, you'll be uh, looking for me out there this weekend. Maybe start from the bottom up and find my name from that side. It might be a little bit quicker. But I'll do my best out there, and it's, this week's about going deep. The following week, I'm going to be up at Belgium doing the opening weekend, back on the cobblestones, which would be very exciting. And the weekend after that, I'm going down to Italy to do Strada Bianchi. So I've got a chock block three weeks ahead. There's going to be some podcasts in between that. Look out for Talking Luft next week over on the Life in the Peloton feed. That'll be Nate Wilson there, just talking a little bit of Luft. And after that, back at the Cycling Podcast, we'll have another episode for you there. So guys, until then, hang in there. Like I said, look for those results and take it easy. Cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.